Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is back. We live in a time of crisis, of impending doom and the fear of nuclear war. But we still need to laugh. This year, comedians will debate the very real question. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? Join Master of Ceremonies Rod Quantock for a sparkling night of progressive comedy featuring Sean Bedlam, Pauline Farts on Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, Gabe Hogan, Frank Hamster, Morvan Smith and more. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Saturday, June 16, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? A fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential. Phone 9639 or go to trybooking.com forward slash VBYO. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. And all and welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. It's Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, I presume you already know that the Radiothon is coming. Our Radiothon show will be on next Saturday, so uh, be prepared. We're going to have lots of different people coming in who are going to chat about why it's important to have Solidarity Breakfast. Hopefully you'll be listening, hopefully you'll ring up, and keep the program a rollicking success. And of course, 3CR, to another year of... A uh, very important uh, conversation about the uh, political landscape that we live in. Um, it's ever changing. Today we're going to go to Grand Place. We've been following the public uh, public housing renewal plan that the uh, Victorian state government is in the throes of thrusting upon the Victorian public. This is. Uh, are an ongoing uh, debacle as far as we're concerned. Uh, the Greens have taken it on board, so have the Socialists uh, and others, other people, people who live in public housing, but also people who have uh, grown up in public housing and others who live around public housing and who can see that there is a uh, questions to be answered. Uh, the Greens... Uh, uh, last year instigated an inquiry into public housing. That inquiry came out last week <coughs> and it revealed very interesting stuff. Uh, the uh, figures of uh, Victorians who need public housing is much greater 
than has been bandied around. The uh, general figure had been about 35,000, but in actual fact it's 82,499 people on the waiting list, including 24,622 children. Uh, since uh, there's been a uh, uh, government uh, neglect in this area, uh, the failing to actually put money into public housing for a long stretch of time, their answer to this is to actually sell off public lands to uh, private developers. And another thing that came out of the report was that in the uh, sell-off of land at Kensington, to a private developer, they sold the land for 5% of the market value, which is pretty fascinating. The Real Estate Institute of Victoria valued the land in Kensington at $1,640 per square metre. The uh, property developer paid $89.95 square uh, metres. Can you imagine? Imagine the difference. Huge, absolutely huge. Uh, another thing that happened in the uh, Parliament last week was the Greens putting forward uh, a motion to block Labor from selling even more public land, but uh, the Liberals and the Labor worked together in ensuring that that was not passed. However, the fight is not over. Uh, p- people need to stand up and fight back. But we'll go to Grom Place. Grom Place is one of those... Uh, uh, estates that are earmarked for this renewal, which is a thinly disguised sell-off. It's in Brunswick West. It's uh, a, quite a beautiful place, actually. It uh, is a, a bit of land that uh, is beside uh, green fields and goes down to the river. Uh, but we learned quite a few things. I first spoke to a couple of people that were there. Can I have a chat with you? I'm from 3CR. Do you live here? Yeah. Yeah. Are you happy people came out to defend your homes? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm so happy, yeah. 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 So the the public I don't know that they, they say they demolish these houses but the if we not retain we don't know yet. Yeah. So we we need action, yes, to do yeah. Now uh you're you're a family man and yeah, this family makes man, a big yeah, difference. Yeah. yeah, family man, yeah. Yeah. Makes yeah. a big difference to have a roof over your head. Sorry? Well, uh, it's important uh, for stability for your family. Yes, definitely. Yeah, very important, yes. We live in here about uh, 12 years. Yeah, so still we know yet, we don't know the way we go in there. They still they don't find us the place to live, but they, they promise, but still we don't, we don't know yet. The, yeah. So if they, if they renew, we're happy to renew, but we need to stay here. To return here, but if they sell in the, these houses, we they say you can't return here. That's no good for us. So all your kids go to school here, and yeah, yeah, they go to school here locally. Yeah, so we needed this area to stay here. We don't want to go too far. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's quite shocking, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's quite shocking. Yes, yeah. So did they send you a letter or what? What what did they do? They say we when they came here. They say we demolish this one and build in the new houses. And if you want to come return, you can return. But they, there's no promise there. Um, when I see there, it's not. I don't. I don't know. I don't trust them, the council. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? Are you glad that? Uh, the, do you think that there's some traction coming along on this issue, as it should be? Oh, 
Look, Annie, I don't know. I'm not exactly the world's greatest optimist. Um, I think we. I, I think we need to take one step at a time. So at the moment, we're trying to get um, the general public to uh, lobby all these upper house um, conservative members of parliament, along with uh, Fiona Patton, to ensure that they also oppose that they um, go along with the Greens and oppose these planning amendments which Labor's trying to push through. No, it's interesting um, because some of the people here have said uh, uh, they didn't even know that there was a difference between social housing and public housing. They didn't know that they were selling the public land to private developers. Isn't that interesting? Well, look, I know it doesn't surprise me that much because... Um, there's not a great deal of information out there about it and most of the people involved in this campaign are doing the grassroots rallying so they don't have time to write op-eds for the newspaper and obviously um, you know the newspapers prefer articles from um, the big housing NGOs and the peak uh, social service bodies who are all in favour of what the government is trying to do. So, you know, one of the things that I think we really need to do is to reach out to those organisations. We've had a couple of goes already, not with a great deal of success, and we re need to really prick their consciences because... To be honest, um, the articles aren't representing the true picture. You know, there's nothing great about producing 160, 187 new units across nine or 11 estates. And that's all this public housing renewal program amounts to. Okay, so I think we need to take truth to power and talk to VCOS and launch housing and um, really sit down and have a robust debate about it because I don't understand if, they, if they're in support of vulnerable people, they want to assist vulnerable people, then um, I don't understand why they're supporting the government's plan. Thank you. Yeah, no. coming, they, he's taking someone. Oh, Who someone's moving. Moving, <laughs> moving in. The moving in or moving out? Moving out. No, there's no one in. Everyone going out. Yeah, yeah there's no one in. Are there a lot of empty flats? Yes, a lot of empty flats, yes. Uh, like the, that side, maybe one, one resident in one side, the other side, maybe one or two. Our side, maybe we are four. This side, even the empty, maybe a couple of, yeah. And this is when there's a huge amount of homeless people. Sorry? This is when there's homeless people. Yes. Yes, and yes. and a thirty-five thousand waiting list. Yes, they can't do anything. <laughs> they need homeless people, and there's nothing there. Yeah, every every day moving out the people here. Yeah, so I don't know. You don't intend to move, do you? No, no. I mean, I, I like this area. Been living twelve years here, so we like to be here in this area. But if they promise us to come back here, we are happy. But if they not. We, are, we stay here, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. Why did you come today? I'm from 3CR. Oh, um, yeah. Why did you come down well, today? We live, we live just around the corner, so um, we care a lot about it. Yeah. So you're interested to find out what was going on here? Yeah, we heard, we've heard for years that they're trying to develop it, and we saw the signs go up, you know, 
saying it was happening and terrible news. Did you learn some new things uh, today? We're actually a bit late today. I think we missed a lot of the <laughs> information. But we Did you know that uh, they're intending to sell public land for, to private developers? Uh, yeah, yeah, but I didn't know to what extent. See, I, I heard, I wasn't sure if it was here, it might have been at the Flemington one, but it's like, there's going to be like 277 private, you know, houses or something. And no, I'm no, like, there's going to be 800. 800? <laughs> ah, that's terrible. <laughs> the, yeah. the and this numbers, is public, and this public land, yeah, yeah, public yeah. land. Like the exact amounts shocked me. I didn't really know, yeah, I didn't know to what extent it was happening. Yeah. Thanks. So that was some of the people there. There were other people there as well, quite a few people actually, at Grom Place in uh, Brunswick West. Uh, and as I said, uh, it's not 35,000 people who are waiting on the list, it's 82,000 Four hundred and ninety-nine. Very precise was the uh, uh, Greens' uh, inquiry into public housing, uh, which uh, was uh, tabled last week. And we went on to hear some speeches. Uh, some each time you go to one of the uh, places where they've targeted new pieces of information at uh, Northcote at Walker Street. It was uh, one of the new pieces of information was that of course. Uh, if they sell off public land, when uh, the local Aboriginal people sit down for treaty, that actually impinges on the treaty, uh, which is an interesting point. Uh, and th- here we hear something else that's quite interesting about the natural landscape. Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming. It's excellent that you're here on this beautiful afternoon, and that's why I'm interested in preserving the beauty of the afternoon. If you look around, turn around and don't look at me, but look behind you, what you observe are beautiful trees which are home to birds, which is my first concern. I learned about this treacherous plan too late to help a lot of the tenants. Some of them had been driven to Western Meadows and given a contract to sign for a new house because they require more bedrooms. So the implications of living in Western Meadows after being here with two other families that they're kin to for 30 years is now dawning on them. And recently we saw them on the estate and they said, are we able to come back? we signed under duress. People are being mucked about. Single mothers who were taken from the estate, three of them to be rehoused, were unable to acquire any properties except in tower blocks, so they have returned to the estate. Imagine the disruption, the anxiety, the stupidity of this plan is now becoming very evident. But we need residents who live around the estate to be involved because Office of Housing tenants have no status. When they complain, they are often ignored. And let's face it, it's their landlord they're criticising. So they're in a very vulnerable position. But as I met a 90-year-old woman when I was helping her across the street recently and her grandfather had a dairy in this area and she said, don't you know why it's called Grown Estate? I said, no. She said, because the land was gifted by Mr Grown to the poor people of Brunswick. This land was given by an individual working hard for members of his own community. That spirit is still here. This estate has no crime. 
There are no bad people here. Everyone's trying to make their way in the world. All they want is to, the estate to be rebuilt. Yes, I'm not against development. There'll have to be more flats, but they should be eco-friendly, modern, and as they appear now. Respecting the trees. This estate, I argue, when combined with Dunstan Reserve, the park across the road, which is very oversubscribed with football teams, a community garden, uh, a food forest and lots of exercise and dog walking people, that park will be overrun when all these flats are completed that are opposite the Grand. If Grand joins in the development, the footfall on the park will be horrific. We need to preserve that park. The park and the Grand Estate form a small lung for this area and your air quality will be depleted. The government has a duty of care to make sure people's air quality is not destroyed by private developments. Please join me in this and later on if you can find me walking around, if you give me your name and uh, I'm not very good on computers, so maybe a, a phone number so I can text you about further action we have to take because the government is planning to put legislation forward that would allow the demolition of these estates. And I'm afraid it's going to be people chained in their bedrooms. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Barbara. Barbara is such a strong advocate. has been leafleting for weeks um, around this area to raise awareness about what's happening to Ron Place and a number of other estates across this state. Uh, I have the great pleasure now of introducing the Mayor of Moreland, John Kavanagh, who's been a strident advocate for more public housing in our state. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you today, and I acknowledge my fellow councillors here, Councillor Sue Bolton, who's been a tireless advocate here, uh, Councillor Mark Riley, and, of course, the former Mayor, uh, Samantha Ratnam. Look, I suppose my message today is a simple one. It's a simple one to say that the Moreland City Council is standing beside the residents in their fight here. It's imp very, very important. Yay, uh, there's no doubt... You. There's no doubt... Thank you. Good on you, Barbara. Thanks for your words. Now, there's been a number of resolutions from Council supportive of the, the fact that this should remain public housing. Public housing. Yes, we certainly see that sometimes there needs to be some improvements, but it should be for, paid for by the public purse and not through developer, uh, through developer funds. You know, I'm quite passionate about this because my grandfather was a former Labor housing minister between 1945 and 1947. You can imagine after World War II, the amount of public housing that was needed in Victoria. And they built it. And they didn't build it by developers' funds. They built it from government coffers. But they, they, they knew what their priorities were then. They knew that public housing was important. Public transport was important. Public hospitals were important. They didn't worry about subsidising AFL, uh, AFL grounds. They didn't worry about Grand Prix. They didn't worry about supporting Tennis Australia. They knew what the basics were, and they did them. And there weren't 38,000 people on public housing waiting lists. Right? The other aspect I want to raise too is the planning minister and the housing minister in cahoots. So now planning control has been taken away from Moreland Council and sits with the planning minister. It's really unfair to local communities not to have a say in development in local areas. And so, so my main message, though, is to the residents of Grom Place, I want you to know that we are beside you, your neighbours are beside you, 
any fair-minded person is beside you and wishes you well in this fight. And well done, Samantha Ratnam. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, John and Moreland Council, for your continued support and unrelenting support for public housing and social good uh, in our areas of Brunswick and beyond. Uh, I now welcome Sue Bolton, who's a councillor at Moreland City Council and from the Socialists, to talk about their work uh, to save public housing. First, I'd like to acknowledge we're standing on Aboriginal land, land that was stolen, land of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation. And I'd also like to mention that the destruction of public housing has actually decimated the inner city Aboriginal communities, especially around, um, around Fitzroy area. Um, so that is, uh, this issue is important for everybody, um, everybody throughout Australia. Um, Basically, what we're seeing is an ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing of poor people, people of colour, all sorts of different people from the inner city. I mean, that's what the implication is of the destruction of public housing around the centre of the city. At the moment, I would say housing is the number one issue in Australia. So why aren't any governments, any single government throughout Australia, building public housing. Basically, what this is part of the whole privatisation push of privatising every single government service, bit of infrastructure. That's what this is all about. It's part of a privatisation push uh, so, that they, uh, so that they can cut corporate taxes, basically. That's what this is all about, is cutting corporate taxes and not paying any money for any kind of social good. But the market has failed to provide housing, which is a human right, because we can see just the other day in Broadmeadows, there wasn't a single dwelling which was affordable for someone on Newstart. And we've got to mention that the definition of affordable housing has changed over the years. It's now 30% of your income in rent, which in my opinion is not affordable for someone who's on Newstart. Um, that means we need to build public housing. So instead of spending half a billion dollars on a new private prison at Lara, we need to be spending that money on a massive expansion of public housing. So the state can afford it. Every state around Australia could afford to solve the housing crisis by instead of investing in um, new uh, white elephants and prisons and so forth, we could be spending that money on housing, which is the most essential issue for people. And in fact, there is a direct link between lack of access to housing and imprisonment. Um, the government's wrong on so many accounts with this. First off, the handover, the handover of public house or public land which is not their land to sell this is public land this is our land handing it over to private developers um, secondly the selling off of public housing um, and thirdly the ripping apart of communities because this is a community and as Neville here can uh, totally explain this is a community um, and they're basically ripping apart communities and dispersing those communities. Now that is a big cost, 
because in these communities, everyone gets the, because it's long term, public housing is long term and permanent. It's not like private housing or so-called so social housing. It's long-term permanent, so you get to know who you can leave your kids with, who, who can look after your kids, who'll give you a lift to the doctors, who you can borrow money from until you get paid. Um, there's a bit of an ecosystem in these communities, so don't believe all the bullshit about um, dysfunctional communities, social problems. Social problems exist everywhere in society, especially in private home ownership, uh, you get social problems. They're certainly not um, unique to public housing estates. So this is wrong on so many accounts. The title of the scheme, Public Housing Renewal, that's designed to suck people in because this is really all about giving developers, developers the land. But there'd be an outcry, public outcry, if people knew they were handing over public land. So they use the term public housing renewal. There'll only be a tiny number of extra so-called social housing dwellings, but social housing's not like public housing. People need to be educated about that. A lot of uh, housing associations treat people exactly the same as private landlords. Tenants do not have the same rights. They don't have the same level of uh, permanency and security. They have to pay higher rents. Housing associations house very few people who are on benefits. They prefer people who are working full-time or three-quarter time because they need the money. And so the destruction of public housing and transfer to social housing is not equal. Uh, so we need proper public housing where there is security of ten tenancy, not this um, social housing where people don't ha have to are forced to pay higher higher rates. We don't need to bulldoze these estates to refurbish them. Sure, there's a need for refurbishment of various estates, although a couple of the estates, the one in Clifton Hill and part of the one in Ascot Vale, have only recently been refurbished. So why bulldoze recently refurbished estates unless you've got the ulterior motive of handing over estates to private developers and, and raking, in, uh, raking in the money uh, and assisting the developers. Um, what you can do is to re refurbish a block at a time. You don't need to disperse a whole community. You can refurbish one block get with a solid guarantee that residents will have the right to return, um, with a solid guarantee that families won't be kicked out. Um, so, that, so there's no need to disperse a whole estate. The only reason you demolish an entire estate is if you want to do something different, and that is hand the land to developers. So our campaign is having an impact because the government has been forced to redraft the relocation agreements um, and there are a few things that they've uh, either gone slower on some estates. But we should, we should be absolutely clear, if these 11 estates go, they will be moving on to every other single estate in Victoria. So every estate is under threat. But also for all, everyone, regardless of whether you're in public housing or not, this issue affects absolutely everybody because if we let these estates go, that will be uh, more opportunity for the developers to speculate, to drive up the costs of rents, and it will be more homelessness, 
more people living in casual arrangements, etc. This affects absolutely everybody. We could, in the next few years, build 50,000 new public housing dwellings. That would make, that would, wouldn't fully solve the problem. But, you know, that's what the Victorian Socialist stands for. We believe that we need to build 50,000 new public housing dwellings in the next few years. Uh, we don't need that new prison, we need more housing. And there's a lot of other things we don't need, but we need housing. That is our biggest thing. But we also have to, we can't wait for the state election. The state election is far too late. The decisions will already be made before then. Um, we do not want to see police coming to estates to evict people. So we need to pledge. We've, we've got people on this estate Neville and others who do not intend to leave the estate, who have not signed relocation agreements. So at the moment, for us to succeed, we need to guarantee that we will build such a strong movement that we will not leave people like Neville and other people on the estates by themselves. Yes. We need community resistance so that we and community picket lines so that we can prevent any evictions from these estates. And while they've managed to bully and sweet talk people out of the estates, some people out of the estates, there is a significant percentage of people still living throughout the estates, including this one. So we need to guarantee that we are going to build that movement, but also, secondly, we need to uh, support the unions and uh, approach unions that we might be in, uh, especially construction unions, to say we will not bulldoze these estates. Uh, we will certainly help with refurbishment, genuine refurbishment, but we will not bulldoze these estates uh, we will assist with refurbishment, but only in cases where there is a solid guarantee that people have the right to return. Yes. And that means, that also means no reduction of the room size of flats from three bedroom to one and two bedroom. Because that's how they're excluding people. And we've, we know the history, we know the history of Kensington and Carlton, because the Kensington redevelopment, hardly anyone was allowed to return. The Carlton redevelopment, because a lot more people knew about Kensington, people fought for the right to return. But the goalposts kept changing. Um, first of all, it might have been five years, you know, you could have had to have been a tenant there for five years in order to have a right to return. Then suddenly the number of years kept creeping up to ten years uh, or more. Um, and there are all sorts of rules and regulations about who was allowed to return or not. It definitely was not a solid guarantee. So we, ne we have that experience. We've got to use that and not believe the lies that people will have a right to return. We already know that the redevelopment plans for this are only for a handful, something like five or six, three-bedroom units. Currently, there's something like 48 or 50 three-bedroom units for families. So we, you know, we've got to um, be aware of the deceit that's being used with this. There is no 
rock-solid guarantee of right of return at the moment under this plan. So we absolutely here need to pledge that we will support Neville um, and everybody else who wants to resist with community picket line to prevent any evictions happening from this site. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. needs you. Fight for your mic and donate to 3CR's annual Radiothon. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. Call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've just been at Grom Place, one of the uh, uh, public housing estates that have been targeted for renewal or uh, sell-off to private developers. Uh, we're um, moving on now to uh, outside the uh, Magistrates Court on uh, Friday. Was it Friday? No, I think it was Thursday, actually. Um Yes, a Thursday. And uh, outside uh, the court there were a group of people who were uh, uh, from CARP, that's uh, Coalition Against Racism and Fascism, because in the courts that morning were uh, three of their compatriots who'd been uh, charged with uh, various things over the uh, demonstration that happened in December when Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, the right-wing uh, rat bag uh, was intending to speak uh, to uh, an audience there right in a provocative fashion right in front of uh, a, a venue right across the road from uh, the uh, uh, Kensington uh, Flats in the west there. And um, also several of the uh, uh, fascists have been charged as well. But uh, I went out there to find out what uh, Calf's message was. So uh, just to remind you about the events that happened and also why it was important for them to be standing there on the busy street at Hapa State on Thursday. You were at the uh, the rally that uh, caused this, kicked this off, weren't you? The Milo one, yeah. 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 Can you tell us a little bit about what happened on that day? How long do you want? <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, we were protesting um, because Milo Milopoulos uh, had been brought to Australia as, as, a, as a provocation, really, uh, and to show uh, that there was opposition to it. Um, and a, lot, a number of fascist organisations turned up uh, outside the building and all that. And there was, so it turned into partly a protest against Milo, but also a protest against these uh, fascists who were there to support him. Um, and they attacked some of the demonstrators uh, there, uh, the fascists did, 
uh, and the police intervened uh, then, came in uh, and arrested uh, some, of the, uh, some of our protesters and so on. So we're in a solidarity with the people who were arrested here uh, for demonstrating against the fascists and that. Uh, subsequently, the demonstration, which was just uh, held over in Kensington there, near the flats, where there's a large number of uh, migrants and refugees uh, in the high-rise flats there, they came out and joined the demonstration and so on. And they were particularly outraged that these far-right racists uh, were coming into their community and threatening them. So they came out and joined the demonstration. So it made quite an impressive demonstration on the day. Uh, yeah. today but an important one because it's really important that when uh, when people on our side get picked up for standing up to Nazis that we're here to support them we make no apology at all for that it's worth reminding ourselves I suppose who Milo Yiannopoulos is the Daily Mail which has been promoting fascism busily since the uh, 1920s actually describes him as a mischief maker well, there's a lot more than that. Of course, the far right, the Nazis, they're not all the same. They don't look the same, they don't dress the same, they don't have the same roles in the far right ecosystem, which is trying to pull society to the right, which is trying to instill fear and terror in Muslim communities and other minority communities. There are some in the far right that wear a swastika tattoo on their shaved head. There are some on the far right that wear suits Milo Yiannopoulos on the far right is someone who boasts about wearing $300,000 worth of clothes and jewellery. That's the sort of fascist he is. And his specific role is to talk to the ones with the swastika tattoos, to talk to the ones who want um, a picture of Hitler put up in every classroom. Milo's role is to message, is to massage their message into a form that's a little bit more acceptable for a mainstream right-wing audience. And that was what he was employed to do uh, by Steve Bannon on Breitbart News. His other role, of course, was a so-called technology writer. Now, Milo doesn't know anything much about technology. He does know a thing or two about channeling the social resentment felt by a certain number of young men 
particularly in their mum's basements, and to try and to forge them into some sort of troll army on behalf of the billionaire class to get Donald Trump elected, and again to instill fear um, and terror into people that want to get in the way of that. So that was Milo Yiannopoulos', Milo Yiannopoulos role. Now there was a, a bit of a tendency back in the day, 200 years ago, the uh, minor aristocracy of Britain. If you had some idiot son that wasn't really good for much, couldn't really do much around the family farm, you'd send him out to Australia and see if he could do any good there. Well, the same thing seems to happen with far-right commentators like Milo. His star has waned in the United States. Everyone's bored with him. No one takes him seriously. But hey, let's ship him out to Australia. Uncle Rupert Murdoch can give him a run in the news. There'll be some clapped-out former Labor Party leader like Mark Latham who can take him by the hand on the right-wing troll speech circuit. And that's what he did. Now, it's worth a laugh, and we have to keep a sense of humour, but there's nothing at all funny about Milo's political project. His political project is expelling Muslims from Australia. His political project is inciting race hatred against whoever the hell he can. So it was absolutely vital when we learned that Milo was coming to Australia and coming to Melbourne, that we decided that we were going to raise our voices in opposition to him. That we were going to try to drown out his message of hate and fear with a message of solidarity for the oppressed and a message of standing strong against the far right. That's what happened at that protest in Melbourne late last year. And when the Nazis turned up, like the ones with actual swastika tattoos, the ones who actually, like Blair Cottrell, say that there should be a picture of Hitler in every classroom, when Milo's Nazi mates turned up and started swinging, well, it turns out that it's a bunch of our people that end up in the dock. So that's why we're here today to say we make no apology for standing against the far right, we make no apology for standing against Milo Yiannopoulos, we make no apology for that protest in Melbourne late last year, we did it before and we'll do it again. So. And and anyone who knows European history knows at least six million good reasons why we can't let Nazis like Milo run around Australia and run around the world without opposition. So I want to finish with a chant, which is no Nazis, never again. 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 No Nazis! Never again! No Nazis! Never again! Think about who came out to support Milo Yiannopoulos at that demonstration last year. Uh, we had Neil Erickson, who is famed for saying that there should be a picture of Hitler in every classroom and saying that there should be a copy of Mein Kampf for every student. Uh, charged multiple times uh, for his uh, disgusting um, behaviour. Uh, a man who uh, incites uh, racism and violence against Muslims. You had uh, representatives of the True Blue Crew, a vigilante group that walks around the streets of Melbourne's West looking for uh, African migrants to abuse and uh, you know attack. We had all of the representatives of the far right in Melbourne at Milo Yiannopoulos' speech uh, last year. And that's why we need to keep on coming out and protesting, because we need to make sure that this far right player in Australia doesn't gain any more ground, that the ideas of the far right don't continue to grow and spread. 
Yeah, look, it's good to see people out here today. Um, as previous speakers have said, I think it's really important uh, that we come out and support our comrades um, who, um, who were arrested and charged for the heinous crime of opposing racism and opposing fascists when they mobilised in the streets of Melbourne's West. Um, so we stand in solidarity with them and we make absolutely no apology about coming out today, coming out then and continuing to come out whenever the fascists rear their heads. And I think it's important that we continue to come out and support our comrades because this is going to be a process that will go on. And the, the growth of the far right is also something that will continue unless we stand up against it. Uh, we can see and the movement that we're trying to build here, I'm, I'm part of the campaign against racism and fascism, and the thing that we're trying to build is a, is a movement that can stand up against the fascists, even when they seem like they're a little bit small now, when they you know, they look a bit pathetic on social media and so on. It's important that we stand up against them now, because if we look at what's happened overseas, if we look at the United States, if we look at Europe, we can see what happens when far-right groups go unabetted, when they go unchallenged. We can see uh, in France, uh, just a couple of years ago, we had, oh no, last year, um, a far-right president was almost elected. We, you can see in Austria, um, the far-right has made real gains there. In Germany, for the first time since the end of the Second World War, fascists have entered parliament there. So we can see uh, what can happen if it goes unchallenged. On the other side, though, you can see what happens when uh, people get together um, on the grounds of solidarity. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, in the streets of Berlin, tens of thousands of people came out to march against Alternative for Deutschland, the far-right party there. That's exactly the type of thing we need to be building here. And so I'd urge people to get involved in the campaign if you're interested. And we've got a couple of protests coming up as well. One on June 24th against the uh, far-right true blue crew, and another one um, in a couple of weeks' time after that. So do get involved. Seems like Australia is uh, one of the places where the far right internationally like to come and spruik their wares. And coming up uh, in September, some far right figures from North America are coming. Uh, Stefan Molyneux and Lauren Southern are two figures of the far right who have gained uh, popularity spreading the sojournistic bullshit. Who have gained popularity by being ardent Trump supporters uh, and talking about how uh, there should be guns in schools in America. And I think it's important for us all here today to say when these far right figures come to Melbourne, we have to keep standing up and protesting them, uh, protesting against them and making sure that their politics don't gain, uh, don't spread. And it's worth thinking about uh, politics in Australia more generally. That racism, and attacks on refugees are the currency of both parties, uh, major parties in Australia. We've had decades and decades and decades of attacks on migrants, of attacks on refugees, making it so that uh, making it so that when refugees try and come to our country, people feel like they shouldn't be supported, that they shouldn't be able to seek asylum. And when our two major parties are so racist and so vitriolic against migrants. It's unsurprising uh, that racism uh, and far-right politics become currency of the day and that far-right groups uh, continue to grow. Now, I think it's also worth saying that if this protest uh, in uh, earlier, uh, later last, sorry, this protest last year, it wasn't just us who protested, but it was also uh, people from the uh, flats, from the commission flats in Flemington, Kensington, who were protesting, who were standing up and fighting against these figures who want to attack them, who target them. 
youth protesters, the valiant protesters have also been arrested and so we stand in solidarity with the residents of the Flemington, um, Kensington Flats as well. Our next speaker is Debbie Brennan. Uh, Debbie is a member of the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism and a socialist activist as well. So my, I represent radical women in the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. I'm also a member of the National Union of Workers because unionists and unions are going to be very important in building this movement to fight the fascists. What is really important about um, today and why we really need to be here and continue to uh, be here is what happened on December 4th that night uh, in our protest that we organized against Milo Yiannopoulos. Those of us who were there remember very well what a violent night that was. And that violence came from the neo-Nazis. It also came from the police. But that night, neo-Nazis were taunting, they were threatening, not only those of us who were there to protest Milo Yiannopoulos, but they were doing the same to the tenants of the Flemington estate, tenants who are immigrants and refugees. It was a very dangerous, volatile evening. And it was that night when neo-Nazis tried to invade our space. And who got arrested that night but three anti-fascists from our side, apparently some fascists as well. But the three anti-fascists on our side were there defending not only us, but the Flemington Estate residents against Nazi violence. And yet our anti-fascist arrestees are charged with very serious charges. Charges of riotous behavior, assault, and affray. So what is this telling us? This is telling us that the police, that the state, are there to criminalize our right to organize against the dangerous, violent neo-Nazis. They are criminalizing our right to defend ourselves. This is why this case today is very important. This is why it's important that we are here today and that we've got to continue to fight this type of attack that tries to criminalize our right to organize. Because, as previous speakers have said, we're right now facing neo-Nazi thugs on the street. Neo-Nazis who raid local councils, who attack refugee rallies, who attack Palestinian rallies, who will not long from now be attacking any kind of meeting of us, including meetings of unionists. This is exactly what Nazism is all about. We only have to remember from 80 years ago that this kind of thuggery that we're facing today, that we are confronting every time they show themselves to keep them small and weak, if we were not there to do that, if we were not exercising our right to organize in that way, then we know what would happen. We know that a fascist movement would grow, and we know that they would be in the position to be able to take state power, and we know what happens from that. Because that's when 
millions of us, whether we be unionists, whether we be LGBTIQ, whether we be Muslims, Jews, anybody, will be sent off to the concentration camps. So this is a very, very serious fight. And we need to continue to organize, but not only organize every time the neo-Nazis show them their faces, we need to be building ourselves. We have to unite as a front of unionists, of LGBTIQ, Muslims, Jews, everyone who is a target of the fascists right now. And so we have to be out there building that front, that united front of everyone who is targeted. That way, we will be able to not only confront them every time they show themselves, we'll be able to stop them from showing themselves and spreading their poisonous, dangerous ideology and to stop their movement from growing. Thank you. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. A weak solidarity bricky team list, though, when exciting news with the Courtly Bureau of Statistics report released Monday showing company profits rose twice as much as economists forecast, meaning we'll all be better off. Isn't it wonderful? I'm using wonderful because have you noticed it's US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the pause, latest in word. And I want to sound cool using latest in words. Isn't it wonderful? And the only slight cloud over the wonderful news is last Friday's lowest of low paid decision, which awarded them about half what they selfishly claimed. But that half was still a major threat, as we presciently predicted last week when we pointed out we had recorded this segment before we knew the decision because the double profits obviously weren't enough to offset the half so to speak to offset a disaster for lowest of low paid workers as the sundry chambers of profits predicted the end of the world as we know it and they're not known for hyperbole when it comes to threats from workers and evil unions the time is not right for such crippling impediments on caring employers just trying to create employment when the decision will cost jobs they sounded shattered. The evil unions had failed the lowest of low paid and it's heartwarming that their every thought is with the lowest of low paid who will be hurt by getting more money. To be honest of course our prediction didn't take much sagacity, in fact any because that's what they say every time. One thought of our own though which we do repeat from last week wish the caring employers would tell us just when the time is right for lazy avaricious workers to get a pay rise because evil unions never pick the right time. Speaking of great corporates doing their best for all of us, faced with calculating the GST on purchases sent to True Blue Aussie, Amazon strike went on strike and declared True Blue Aussie out of bounds as a US of court case threatens to hit it, as the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review described it, with a new tax. And I'm not sure that's the correct description, given as far as Amazon strike is concerned, there's no old tax. On the other hand, Amazon strike paying any tax would be new, so maybe that's what the capitalist review meant. Now, as we admitted last week, our 3CR budget couldn't afford an interview with former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo, now far, far, far back and rapidly disappearing backbencher Barnacle and his new partner, but after a promotion on the Kerry Stacks of Wealth channel, the interview all True Blue Aussie is talking about being the dedicated, assiduous journalists we are here at 3CR, we conducted a Vox Pop to test the marketing claim, and in fairness, Channel Stacks of Wealth was spot on. Every
everybody was talking about it. You've got to be joking. No way, mate. What? Spoil my night? You'd have to be brain dead. Not on your life. With just a few of the enthusiastic responses, and of the 150 interviews we conducted, we decided to do one to celebrate every $1,000, to a person they insisted they had no intention of watching it. And the ratings confirmed our in-depth journalism. Gee, who would have thought Barnica would be a ratings disaster? Still, it's channel stacks of wealth's own fault. We, we gave them the answer last week. Interview the baby. At least she or he, I can't remember which, would have made some sense. Meanwhile, big supremo Malcolm Tunnable was touring drought-stricken rural areas with Barnacle's dynamic hayseed and sheepshit party successor. The absolute scum of the earth people, according to Barnacle, and we'll be nice and not comment on that, but Malcolm advised these farmers they must adapt to climate change. Given with the lot behind me in my no such thing as climate change party guaranteeing we'll do nothing about it, let me, as the strong leader of the country that I am, advise you to adapt to climate change. Uh, if there is uh, such a thing, uh, such a thing as... Uh, and what do you advise, one farmer asked. Well, with clever marketing, surely you could create a market in, in sand flies, for instance. Appropriate, because they've had their heads buried in it for years. Indeed, from beneath the sands, the muffled voice of former hayseed and sheepshit supremo John Undersandson chided Malcolm for suggesting the unproven possibility that there might be such a thing as climate change had anything to do with the drought. Given that a mere 99.9% .9 of scientists declare climate change is proven, leaving plenty of room for scientific debate, and the clincher to prove John's point, there had been a drought just as bad in 1902. <laughs> what more proof do we need? And, and there is more proof. There was another one in 1940. Okay, 38 years between and now 78 years. So, given climate change is so unproven, there shouldn't be another drought until, say, quick top of the head calculation, say, next year, and then probably not until the year after. And John Undersandson was regarded as one of the more moderate hayseed and sheepshit party leaders. Imagine what the more immoderates are up to. Those most moderate people in its coalition partner, the Caring Business Class Party, continue their important campaign to ensure the filthy rich get their hands on all that lovely, lovely workers' super money, led by the Minister for Making the Filthy Rich Filthier Richer, Kelly O'Dwyer Workers So Evil, not driven by greed, goodness no, wash our mouths out, but by their knowledge that irresponsible workers have no right to control their own money when highly responsible, universally respected bankers and financial barons should control all that lovely, lovely money. But this item, let's call it the Nothing Like Solidarity Department, is not strictly to do with Kelly and the caring business class lot. It's about the famous resolve of the Socialist Party to fight its guts out for those workers. Following a productivity profits report that all that lovely, lovely workers' money has no place being controlled by workers, Kelly and the team have telegraphed their punches a fair bit, but as yet there are no firm proposals on how they'll hand all that lovely, lovely to the highly respected bankers and financial gurus. So, how has the Socialist Party sprung to the defence of workers and evil unions?
well, true to form. Even before the government has announced what we know they will announce, the good old Socialist Party has said it's willing to compromise, to agree that default funds, for instance, should be handed to the bankers and other independent success stories, almost as successful as the union funds which outscored them. And would-be big economic guru Chris Bowen to Capital said many of the recommendations seem to be sensible, and the government will find engaging partners in the Socialist Party. Oh, their solidarity is bottomless, isn't it? And to show how rigid and uncompromising the evil unions are, the ACTU came out and said it disagreed with Chris that there was no reason workers should not control their own money, when we all know workers are not independent like bankers and financial gurus. And OK, the workers' industrial funds perform better than, but Kelly and the knowledgeable commentators always acknowledge that. Well, they haven't got much choice, but then explain there's a reason unions cheat or something by extracting lower fees that didn't stop the productivity profits lot from concentrating on the fees they do charge, but a reason which does not detract from having to hand it all to the caring business class without mentioning the word greed, which just may have a little to do with it. Anyway, well done, Socialist Party. There's nothing like solidarity. We have mentioned another moderate caring business class mind, a former big train killer called Hasty, had been Hasty in broadcasting in Parliament classified information from the US of in his role as head of the Intelligence and Security Committee. And I thought, if he's head of an Intelligence Committee, we have to wonder about those who are less intelligent. There's these new laws being proposed to save us from foreign intervention um, or interference, including preventing the release of secret information from great allies like the US of, who would never dream of interfering in our affairs, but we don't need the legislation. Just tell this hasty train killer bloke the secret information and point him to the nearest parliamentary microphone. In the US of, Donald is heading to Singapore, despite desperate attempts by his lawyer to provoke North Korea into spitting the dummy, heading too to earn his Nobel Peace Laureate. Wonderful. It will be wonderful. And he didn't need to prepare, which should guarantee things go well. Let's hope evil North Korea doesn't offer something as unreasonable as, we'll denuclearize, abolish our skyrockets, if you denuclearize, abolish your thousands. Because that would not be wonderful, wonderful. Johnny Mathis, by the way, did a much better job. Finally, local councils, the Greens, the Socialists, including the sitting member for Batman and more pertinently Indigenous groups, have sought to change its name to Wonga, a Wurundjeri leader due to Batman's role in the attempted genocide of Tasmania's Aboriginal population. But the Electoral Commission has rejected the move on the grounds, we do not consider strong enough reasons have been provided. What stronger reason do you need than genocide? Good morning. The Green Left Weekly Comedy Debate is back. We live in a time of crisis, of impending doom and the fear of nuclear war. But we still need to laugh. This year, comedians will debate the very real question. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? Join Master of Ceremonies Rod Quantock for a sparkling night of progressive comedy featuring Sean Bedlam, Pauline Farts on Hellchild, Kirsty Mack, Gabe Hogan, Frank Hamster, Morvan Smith and more. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concession. 
there'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Saturday, June 16, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Will Trump tweet us into oblivion? A fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential. Phone 9639 or go to trybooking.com forward slash VBYO. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter. 3CR needs you. Fight for your mic and donate to 3CR's annual Radiothon. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. Call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, to take up the last half hour of the program, we've had a rollicking time. We've been at uh, Grom Place looking at public housing. We uh, went outside the uh, Melbourne Magistrates Court and uh, listened to uh, what the Coalition Against Racism and Fascism had to say uh, when several of their members had been uh, arrested and were in court over the uh, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, demonstrations in December last year. Uh, And now we're going to go to an event that was put on by the uh, New International Bookshop to celebrate Harry Gazbeck's new book, Capitalism, A Crime Scene. Harry gave a rather entertaining speech and so uh, he's explaining his argument. Why is capitalism per se a crime scene? We claim to live according to a political philosophy which we call liberalism. And we abide by a liberal legal system. That's what we claim to share as a society. As we do that, we believe in certain principles. One of them is, of course, that liberalism is centered on the sacredness of the individual. The individual is the core of the system. We are to respect each individual equally. That's why we hate racism and sexism and all these things, right? Now, of course, we know that not everybody has the same talents. And not everybody has the same resources. So we're not equal in material ways. But politically, as citizens, as political participants in this society, we are to be treated equally. Nobody, 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 nobody can tell us what to think. Nobody can tell us how to act. No one. Coercion is the enemy. Now, of course, if we all think and act as we like, we're going to bump into each other, right? So we need a coordinating system. That's what the law does for us. Law provides coordination that puts limits on how, how we can think and act so that most people can think and act as they like. But the government and the state is also to be limited because it might abuse those coordinating powers. That's dangerous. So the state is limited. So, for instance, the government cannot pass laws which are outside its constitutional mandate. There are conventions, as for instance in England, where there is no written constitution. There are conventions which limit the government. In some countries, like the one I live in, mostly Canada, we have bills of rights in the Constitution which stop the government from acting against individualism. The bills of rights traditionally protect 
free speech, freedom of association, freedom of belief, freedom of political conviction, and so on, from the government. So it's quite clear. Coercion is the enemy. It's the worst thing we can have in a liberal system. Coercion. Coercion is a crime. That's how we treat it. Think of the crimes you know. Murder. Uh, violence. Sexual assaults. Blackmail. To take a topical one. They're all, they're all revolting ideas because they hurt human beings. We don't like them. So we have a moral sense that they're wrong. But there's more than a moral sense. They're all acts of coercion. They're all acts of coercion. When it's not obvious that it's coercion, it's not obvious it should be a crime. Should possession and peddling in marijuana be a crime or not? We don't know, because there's no <laughs> coercion. Second foundational principle is, of course, in a liberal system, in a liberal, watch my lips, I haven't said this before, liberal capitalist system. <laughs> in a liberal capitalist system, liberalism is associated with the ownership of private property. Private property. Ownership of private property doesn't mean that, that you can do with it as you like. It means that, of course. It also means that you can do nothing with it if you don't want to. Let me translate that into what you know, without my help. Rich people are not paying their taxes. That is, we have a system of taxation levying, and a lot of people seem to be able not to pay any, or very little. How does that happen? Well, there are many ways, and we could talk about that at length. But I just want to go to the foundational principle. Because when the government taxes somebody, they're taking away property. They're taking away property. And people who own wealth, which are very few people, by the way, people who own wealth get very antsy. They say, watch my lips again. That's coercive. It's quasi-criminal. You can't do that. You cannot take my property, just as if you would like, as you would like to. So therefore, therefore, you, the government, the state, must justify its taking. The burden is on the state. Now, what will a meek politician do in that context? <laughs> it will find it easier to cut taxes than to increase them. And of course, it makes perfectly good sense for the property owner to say, well, look, the state is taking, but it's taking only in these circumstances, so if I can flip my property a little bit aside, say, to the Cayman Islands, I don't have to pay it. It's not there. Because it makes sense. It makes sense, you see. Turn that over. By the way, it doesn't make sense for workers. Notice the government takes from the workers straight away. The worker never gets an opportunity. That tax is paid before the worker ever sees the money. How does that happen? <laughs> it's not hard to figure out, is it? From a foundational principle. Take welfare. We, every now and again, politically and socially, we decide 
that some people who are needy, who are vulnerable, need some assistance from the government. Here again, the same problem. The government's got to find some revenue. It goes to the people who have property, takes it from them, gives it to others. Oi, remember that, that's coercion. You must justify that. So when the government decides that it will do that, what it does, it narrows, it narrows, it narrows the band of people who are entitled so it can say to the people from whom it takes, look, this is justified. These people really need it. And as long as they qualify, as long as they qualify, they can have it. You should let them have it. And then the welfare applicant must prove that he or she falls within those narrow boundaries. And then you have centering. <laughs> All from one principle. Those principles shall shut through everything we do. Give you another example. A mugger comes up to you in the street on the way home. It's a very bad neighborhood around here. He says, give, you, give me your wallet or I'll kill you. Got a gun in his hand. That's a crime, right? And why is it a crime? It's coercion. It's very straightforward. And it's taking your property. Absolutely clear. Nobody's in any difficulty with that. Workers at work. Dirty stuff everywhere. His lungs are clogged. And he says, please give me some ventilation. I'm dying here. And the employer says, look, I tell you what, if you take less wages, that is, if you give me your money, I'll save your lungs. Identical proposition. He's mugging the worker. He's coercing the worker. No crime. What is the assumption then? What stops it from being a crime? We pretend, and this is the big pretense of capitalism, that the worker has agreed to take in the filthier. He has voluntarily agreed to his conditions at work. So there is no coercion because there's been consent. No crime. Now we know that to be a lie in, in this building. We all know this to be a lie because there is no such thing as a contract of employment which is actually voluntary. In our situation we have a tiny number of people who own the means of production, to use that very old phrase. And as I remember, they don't have to invest it. They can eat it, if they wish. People who don't have ownership of any means of production in order to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to educate their children, to keep their house going, must, must invest what they have. And the only thing they have is themselves. It's the only thing they own. So they sell themselves. And what is it that the employer buys? Intellect. The imagination. The physical strength. The vigor. The flexibility of the worker. Now remember, we believe in the sacredness and respect for every individual. And here is an individual selling herself. The bits that make her an individual. And we say she consents. Now, of course she doesn't, and that's what all resistance in the workplace is about. 
all of this in the workplace thing, you're not paying me enough for my intelligence, my intellect, for my person. We need more or we're not doing anything. So the employer, the employer who has invested his property, his real property, says, oh no, I've got to have a way to snatch more from that intellect, that vigor, that imagination, that strength. How do I get more? By disciplining. Now watch my lips again. Disciplining. That's the word in the criminal lexicon. Disciplining the worker. How do you discipline? Well, a good deal of unemployment doesn't do any harm. That helps. De-skilling helps. New technologies help. Farming out workers to people who are even worse off and who are even more willing to sell themselves for less helps. All these things happen all the time, right? And with all these advantages, they're still steal. Something else. <laughs> so they have to do that. And they do that systematically. And the law aids them. Because one of the problems the employer always has is, well, look, I told so-and-so to fix that, but three o'clock he hasn't fixed it. So the law implies, on behalf of the property owner, implies duties. Now remember, implies duties, not that the workers ever agree to, never mention. Duties of good faith, loyalty, exercise of skill, and most importantly, most importantly, and look at you all, you're so free and independent, most importantly, to obey! This is a particular kind of relationship, isn't it? That's the norm, isn't it? So, it, and what is that? What is happening? It is the power of economic control. It is coercion, which is not by force, but with a hammer or a gun, but with wealth. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're listening to Harry Glasbeck, who's written a book called Capitalism, A Crime Scene. It's only one of his many books. He uh, mentioned that he actually uh, lives mostly in Canada. He's a uh, lecturer at uh, one of the universities there, and he's had a long history in industrial law in Australia. Uh, Fascinating guy. So uh, we'll hear the rest of what he has to say. So what do we do? We say, it's not that bad, you're exaggerating, and of course I'm not. But what you do see is that sometimes there is a regulation that frames this coercive system, that seems to give it some legitimacy. And that's what happens when I said the ventilation example, of course, immediately, because you're smart-looking people, you thought, oh, no, there'll be a health or safety regulation about that. Couldn't do that. That's true. That's true. How do we get these regulations? What are they? Well, let me say. It's the same principle as the principle I talked about before. The same two principles of work. You don't get a regulation until you have done sufficient harm to warrant it. There's never a regulation. Right? Person sticks a hand in a machine, Hand cut off, an accident. Ten people stick their hand in that machine, a cluster. Two hundred people stick in the machine, a regulation to put a guy on the machine. That's how workers participate in decision making. And it's worse than that. 
because we assume that the only way to create a decent society is by letting individuals who own property to do it as they like. To do as they like. We are so grateful when they invest their monies. Now, they don't do it for any reason except to make more money, of course. But we're so grateful to them because they might eat it. <laughs> they might just not give it to us. So being grateful like that, what we do is we treat them as virtuous participants in the system. Not criminals, virtuous. And as virtuous people, the equipment and the materials they choose and the locale they choose, all, all their decisions, by the way, that's called a business plan, proudly, right? All their decisions, as they make all their decisions, we thank them for it. So when something goes wrong and we have to impose a regulation because, for instance, we had no regulation on asbestos until several million people had been poisoned. Couldn't believe that any people were exposed to asbestos. Who could do that? Well, they could. And then, so we say, oh, well, look, you virtuous people, I'm sorry, we're going to have to regulate it because you're actually hurting too many people, you're polluting the environment too much, there are too many consumers being cheated, whatever it is, right? Doesn't really matter what sphere you're in, it's the same argument. As they do that, we say to them, well, listen, I'll tell you what, what regulation do you think you could afford? Come and talk to us, because you're virtuous people. And they come sit down, and sit down with the regulators, and say, look, we can bear this, we can't bear that. And we have technical expressions, practically feasible, reasonably practical, and, and so on. And they're given a permit to operate within those regulations. Now, what are those regulations? They're permits. They're permits to do a certain amount of harm. Above that harm, you're a terrible person. But if you stay within that harm, it's okay. You're still a virtuous person. And we think it's normal. And of course, we notice the assumption that if there is a permit and they stay within the permit, the worker, the person living in the environment, the consumer, they've all agreed to the risk that is now being built into your society. They've all agreed. Even though mostly they've only particip been participating by coughing and not much else. They all agree, even they couldn't do nothing about it. So the same assumption again. Private property, allowed to regulate, they participate in it. And of course, the permit is really quite remarkable. For instance, boxers have a permit, because they're going to hit each other, right? So they need a permit to fight. They need a permit to hurt each other, to a certain extent. And therefore, we regulate them. We say, you've got to be roughly of the same size. Now, that doesn't happen anywhere else. You've got to be roughly the same size. You've got to have roughly an equal chance of winning. But if one of you does something beyond the rules, like biting somebody's ear off, not only will you lose, but you'll lose your license and you'll be sent to jail. But uh, when we get to the capitalist system, not at all. Then it happens, we say, oh, gee, you've broken the permit. You've gone beyond it. 
You've allowed to hurt a certain amount of people, but you've gone beyond that. Ha! That's too bad. I'll tell you what. Let's talk about it. We, we won't say you're a criminal, although you've gone beyond the permit. We'll say, maybe you should have a civil sanction. Civil. Simple. People hurt your people. Nice. Or maybe not even that. I'll tell you what. If you undertake not to do this again for a while, it'll be okay. It's called an enforceable undertaking, right? And they come and enforce it, maybe or maybe not. What a difference it makes. Right? Once you accept these funds, they're good, they're virtuous, they've got property, they're entitled to keep it, they're entitled to do with it as they like. Once you make all these assumptions, remember the consenting I spoke about. We're supposed to consent to that. Imagine if somebody says, wants to promote something, hires the MCG, says, fill it up! It's free, the spectacle is free. You can watch it. It's for free, <coughs> nothing there. We'll give you a pie. Or a Chicago, take your pick. And you can watch the spectacle. There is only one risk. At halftime, some guys are going to come out with semi-automatic machines and blast 10% of you. Some of you will die. Some of you become paralyzed. Some of you will be psychiatrically traumatized. And some of you will only be barely nicked. But you can keep the pie or the chicken roll if you can. That's what we say in the workplace to workers. We're aiming for a permit that allows you, we hope, keep the rate of injury, death, and disease down to 10%. <laughs> 10% of a cow TMC, would we allow that to happen? You know the answer, right? In the workplace, it's the norm! In the MCG, we'll be criminal. Or take a regulatory breach. A regulatory breach, civil undertaking. Enforceable undertaking. A reprimand. I'll come back and see you next week, see how you're doing. Kind of reprimand. That's how it works, right? A drunk driver, some of you may have driven here, I hope not, and drank all that expensive wine. You go home and you're drunk, you're out of your mind. You don't know what you're doing. Drive down the street, you think you're looking, seeing butterflies everywhere. You kill somebody. Now you clearly be in breach of our traffic and highway traffic rules. That's easy, a regulation. And you'll be punished, you might lose your license, whatever. You might also be charged for manslaughter or another kind of homicide. Why is he being charged? Because he was indifferent to human life. That's why the drunk driver is being charged. He didn't mean to hit anyone, he was drunk. He was indifferent before he got into the car. The employer who has a business plan about polluting or health and safety, who's figured it all out, has had a plan to build the risks in, and he's not punished like that. He's much worse morally than the drunken driver who is just stupid. 
So this happened, I think. So I, I should finish that. What we should do, obviously, I don't want to stop people doing what they're doing now, sitting in their silos, fighting their own fights. They must do that. They have no choice. But I want to add tools to their toolbox. If they understand that this is a system that can be shown to be cohesively criminal in nature, then they can attack much more forcefully. For instance, if a regulation is broken, that which gives a permit to hurt, we should stop talking about civil actions, enforceable undertakings, reprimands, <coughs> please do better next time. We should actually say, you broke this permit, you've hurt, maimed, killed, polluted, cheated in a way that you're not allowed to do, jail! No talking because you own the property, you decided what to do with it. You are responsible, as we all are supposed to be in a liberal society. We are responsible for our own thinking and acting. And it shouldn't just be the cooperation about which I haven't talked, you might have noticed. But the other book, you know. But it should be the people who control and benefit from these activities. Fight for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018, Fight for Your Mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on, broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th, Fight for Your Mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. Tell me what you're fighting for, because this day gonna keep you alive. Forget about your troubles and your nine to five with the rhythm of the pump. Well, that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast for this week. Don't forget, next week is Radiothon. We have just been listening to the fabulous Harry Glasbeck and his book, uh, Capitalism, A Crime Scene, is available at the new International Bookshop. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with the drones. Thud, thud, my heart pumped blood Whenever someone talks about my time is shut uh, who gets that foxglove snitch And put it in with poison like a puffer fish Why don't anybody feel like crying for the summer To somebody with the hazel eyes Why don't anybody feel like crying for the summer To nobody with the hazel eyes You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.